0: Blob Talk Radio.
1: Engage for Success Radio. Raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there is a better way to work.
0: Well, hello again everybody and welcome to show number 20 in our Engage for Success radio show series. Um, We're starting to get quite a lot of um, people listening to the archive shows. I think we've got a few extra live listeners today because of the topic. Uh, But hello to everybody listening live and also if you're listening on the archive. So really excited today. Um, I'm Jo Dodds. I'm uh, one of the co-hosts and I'm a social media HR consultant working with Engaged Success on social media and digital. And um, I'm really excited today to be introducing uh, our guest, Phil Sherwood of management consulting company Purple and Red, who was head of volunteering and workforce training for the London Organising Committee of the Olympic and Paralympic, uh, Paralympic Games, London 2012. So, hi, Phil. Are you there?
1: Absolutely. Hi. How are you, Jeff?
0: Excellent. It's always a relief when the guest says hello. (laughs) Good, thank you. So um, we're going to obviously be talking about your role in the uh, Olympics and the uh, Games Maker Programme, which I think people are really interested in hearing about. But um, to begin with, there was an article in the FT that you brought to my attention just before we came on air, um, which um, we thought we'd lead with, and then we can sort of take it from there. So um, perhaps you could tell us a bit about the article.
1: Yeah, Joe. I think it's just um, it's a very timely conversation today. Um, reading the papers this morning. Actually, I saw it on the BBC first thing this morning. Um, I'd love to say I read the FT every day, but I'm afraid I don't. Um, <laughs> but uh, the results of the 2012 uh, the 2012 Skills and Employment Survey were published today, and actually, it's not great reading in terms of um, of engagement. And actually, I think I think the piece that I pulled out is a comment from um, from um, a Professor at Cardiff University, who said basically the slowness with which employers in Britain are enhancing employee participation, it's becoming an issue of considerable concern. And I think, you know, the whole the whole piece is around people are feeling insecure in their job and in their role, and I think that actually it's a time when, when you probably want to be more connected to your employees. Uh, there's a bit of a polarisation and, and, you know, people are just trying to hang on in there, and, you know, it, it, I, I just think it's really timely.
0: Mm, yeah, definitely. It's interesting, as you said, there's a lot of conversation around... You know, can you sort of engage people in in the sort of environment that we're in currently? But as you say, it's sort of almost the opposite. You know, you've got to because the people who get it right are the ones that are going to continue and and sort of come out of it in a better position from everything that you you know see, read, hear about engagement and and how it works within organisations. So um, um, yeah, really timely for that to have come out and um, concerning, but also a good opportunity for us within the movement to continue to spread the word and really try and help shine a light on good practice to help people to sort of really, you know, do things around this sort of um, topic. So, so Phil, tell me a bit about um, who you are and, and what your role was in London 2012, and, and we'll sort of go from there.
1: Yeah, um, well, four years ago, I, I left a, a, a career um, as an Army officer of all things. Um, I was an Army officer for 23 years. Um, I left the Army uh, as a colonel. Um, you know, having served in the Royal Engineers, and um, my role at um, London 2012 was to um, t- to recruit and train the 70,000 volunteers who became known as Games Makers. Um, I mean, it's an interesting one. You think, why on earth would a Royal Engineer from the Army end up doing the biggest recruitment campaign since World War Two, which is probably the only connection to the military, really? Um, <laughs> and, and, and actually, from my perspective, I'd, I'd never heard of employment engage, employee engagement before I um, before I joined LoCock. But actually, then when I looked at what it was all about, I realized it was, it was critical to what we were doing, and, and forgetting the terminology, forgetting about management speak, I'd had 23 years of indoctrination in the military, so I certainly didn't understand management speak, but I very quickly realized that what employee engagement was all about was, was what I'd been doing for, for 23 years, and it was all about leadership and two-way communication. And uh, to give the example, I commanded a regiment in Afghanistan where... My squadrons were very dislocated from where I was, in fact, one of the squadrons I didn't see for six months. And and therefore, actually, leadership and communication indirectly was absolutely critical to ensure that that those guys that I didn't see, those guys and girls that I didn't see, were engaged with what we were doing as a mission and, uh, you know, had their part to play. But actually, was also living the, the ethos and understanding what it was we were trying to achieve. So... Forgetting the language, actually, twenty-three years in the army was was actually not a bad background to go and do what I ended up going and doing.
0: And it's interesting you talk about the language. There's some uh, research that's been completed by the Ashridge Business School that's being launched uh, next month, I believe. And uh, one of the discussions was around uh, the CEO perspective uh, of barriers to engagement. And one of the things they talk about is actually the language can sometimes be a barrier in itself. And, and we had a conversation mm. prior to today, uh, where we did talk about, you know, what did we used to call it before we called it engagement, and, and actually, uh, as you say, having the sort of, um, you know, phrase that, that gets bandied around sometimes can get in the way of people actually talking about the things that just sort of work without having necessarily sort of names for them sort of thing, so uh, interesting you say that. So you had 70,000 volunteers, 860 roles, and 80 venues, and they worked for 8 million hours for free. That sounds like an absolutely daunting... I mean, obviously, going to Afghanistan and commanding those sorts of numbers of people over there was daunting enough. But <laughs> This <laughs> sounds to me even worse. <laughs> Apart from slightly safer, I would guess. <laughs> so how did you um, sort of kick I'll things be, off? Where, how do,
1: be, when you think about it in terms of the numbers, it gets very scary again, even just thinking back at it. But... Um, <laughs> I suppose, actually, the you know having having served in the military and I, 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 my last job was um, with the American Army and I was due to go off to the Pentagon, but um, I've got a background in in strategic programs in the Ministry of Defence, and, and so I was used to thinking at and working at the strategic level. And actually, this this to me was almost a almost a simple problem in terms of a strategic program of ends, ways, and means. We we knew what the end state was, which which, which was great. Um, So when you go to the numbers, yes, it does sound scary, but a a fairly straightforward model. But interestingly, when you look at the the four pillars of of engagement, I think the key to the whole thing was about the the strategic narrative, what I in the military Mm -hmm. would have called the end state. And I think we were very lucky in terms of a strategic narrative in in that, well, everyone's heard of the Olympics. Now, clearly that's not the narrative, but that, that talks about the scale and the fact that it's working at the strategic level. So I suppose the first big challenge was how, how we got people to to engage with, with what part they had to play in that strategic narrative, how they could put on the greatest games in the world, um, the greatest show on earth. And, and actually, that was a really interesting challenge, because what we didn't want to do, um, and we talk about 70,000 people, but what we didn't want to do is actually have millions of people. Thinking it was a great way to see the Olympic Games or the Paralympic Games for free, um, and mm-hmm. so that was really our style point about what it, you know what it was we wanted. And when we when we talk about engagement, I, I really I really look at the, the three. The, the, you know, we've got the four pillars of engagement, but actually the three things I look at in the, the strategic level about that business about attitude, behaviour, and outcome. Um, we 've done a lot of market research uh, beforehand, and, and actually i mean it 's quite an amusing story in some ways is that when we first went out to the British public um, asking if people would be interested in, in volunteering at the games, we had twelve million people said they would be. Um, we then told them they wouldn 't get paid, and that number dropped to three million which um, which actually gives you quite an interesting view of what some people think about volunteering um, but what i 'm getting at is that even when we got down to the to the basic So what what it was all about, the fact that people would have to find their own accommodation, they'd have to get their own transport to London, we still knew that we had about 1.2 million people who were interested. So actually that put us in in a nice position that we had our strategic narrative. We knew we had a lot of people interested, which meant that actually in our campaign we could be quite hard about what this was all about. This was not about watching the games for free. And we actually had a summer of education in 2010 where we talked about this is not glamorous, um, it could actually be quite mundane, you're probably not going to see an athlete and so that, that really started to get us, you know, getting the right part, right people for that attitude piece, they're in there for the, the right mm-hmm. reason not to come and see the games for free. So and that, and that's where we started at, it was about a mindset, it wasn't about this this worry about where do we find 70,000 people from. And actually, in in a lot of ways, our our biggest issue really was managing disappointment for the people that didn't get in.
0: Yeah, I I can say, as you say, it could almost have had the opposite effect. You've got all your sort of motivated people who are in the the team, as it were, and and maybe publicity and so on of the people who didn't get in could have been a problem because there was some issues over publicity, over tickets and things like that. So I guess you could have had the same issue with the volunteers. And I, I don't recall that happening from my sort of, you know... Watching of what was happening sort of thing, but I do certainly remember the emotion and the uh sort of um attitude of the people that that were there. I didn't go to any of the events, but i traveled into London a few times whilst it was happening and on the high speed going through umedbsley and stratford um it was just so heartening to see the sort of attitude that people had, and you said that that was a big part of of the recruitment process, the attitude
1: yeah absolutely i mean what what we did is is that i mean values sit behind everything, but actually it's the If you move from attitude to behaviors, you you need behaviors to sit under those values. And what we we did is actually we we interviewed everybody face-to-face, which um, was quite a task in itself. Um, We interviewed somewhere (laughs) in the region 95,000 people, which um, I don't think has ever been done before. But what we did do is we had quite a long application form so that we knew that everybody was qualified or had the skill set or the experience to do the role that was that they they were interviewing for so that allowed us to interview for attitude rather than interview for experience and to see if people were qualified.
0: Mhm. Yeah. So thinking about um our second enabler so you're talking about the the pillars of engagement um which we tend to call the enablers so we talked about the um strategic narrative. Um the second one was about engaging managers and and so I guess that there's two bits to this here. Firstly it's who who was the team um who who kicked this off in the first place, so did the, you know, 90,000 interviews and so on. And then once you'd recruited people, presumably you you had people that you would describe now as team leaders, managers, whatever, within the 70,000. I mean, you weren't managing them all yourself directly. <laughs> so, um, you know, how did you create that, uh, that culture and that environment to enable um, the people to be engaged and to enable the people who are managing them to do that?
1: I think there's probably really three... Three aspects to that. The first one is that is that, and actually we were really, really fortunate um, and and from an engagement point of view, every every business would have loved to have Sebco and Paul dyton, um, not because of their <laughs> just because of their their, their quality and skill set, but actually you know they led from the front and and they really did understand engagement. And everything came from them. So, you know, Paul Dighton, as chief exec, he, you know, we, we had a team of about 2,000, really, permanent staff at, um, at lowcock and, and Paul went about what he calls recruiting a team of people who would do the best work of their lives. And, um, mm-hmm. and I suppose that really filtered down as that, that everybody we wanted to make sure If this was going to be the best games ever, we needed everybody to do the best work of their lives. So that was great. So we had a great core staff. On the recruitment team, I was so lucky that I had, I had an amazing team working for me on the recruitment side, and they, they run the selection events, as we call the interviews, to do these 95,000 interviews. Um, but interesting, what we did as well, we, we, we used volunteers to do the interviewing. So we, we, we also recruited 2,500 people who came in on their own time to do that interviewing face-to-face. And I think that's quite important because whilst they were not managers, the fact that they were giving their time up to interview somebody else was engaging in it itself. And the fact mm-hmm. that they, you know, that the person coming in to be interviewed could see that somebody else was putting putting themselves out to do it. And then I think, mm-hmm. really, the third part is that, you know, all of the recruitment team, um, came, come games time, everybody, you know, we'd finished the recruiting, everybody went to a game, what we called a games time role at a venue somewhere, and they were either a workforce manager or a deputy workforce manager. And through our training, um, you know, we trained every member of the LOCOG staff in, in leadership. Now, it wasn't about training people to be leaders. What we were doing is taking people's leadership skills. And actually, that also includes volunteers that were in leadership roles. That we, we, weren't, we weren't teaching people to be leaders. What we were doing is, is taking existing leadership qualities that were either there in the LOCOG staff or had been identified as in, interview um, for the volunteers. And putting that, those leadership skills into the context of a major sporting environment, And that leadership skill, that, that leadership training, very you know, it wasn't a long training session, it was half a day. But the importance of volunteers and the fact that actually, if you if you don't, and I, and I use the word lead rather than manage, if you don't lead volunteers well, they'll just walk, and and so they are the most important people in everybody's team, not people who are getting paid, but those people who. They're there today because they want to be there. And, and actually, you know, good leadership will get them back tomorrow and again for the Paralympic Games. So that leadership mm-hmm. training was all about the importance of the morning briefing, the greeting, the welcoming people back, the importance of the, of the after action review, the after, you know, when you finish your 10 hour shift, about getting everybody together for a huddle. And again, just thanking them and, and reinforcing the importance of what they had done that day and it was it was down to what i would call you know cold faced grassroots leadership
0: mm mm-hmm. when we were preparing for this interview one of the things that um, i really liked was where you were talking about empowering the people to be themselves and i guess that was part of that yeah. leadership training as well so tell us more about what that that mean, means to you
1: yeah i mean that was an interesting point and when we did, when we we spoke before this um this interview um it was just before i think the closing ceremony of the olympic games i was on bbc radio and i was asked by mark chapman and he said he said what have you done to the volunteers to make them be the way they are um... because actually, i think it was quite i think a lot of people in britain were quite shocked at this, this this outpouring of people speaking to each other on the tube and things like that
0: but actually what i had to do was it was
1: quite <laughs> but, but, but what is we empowered them to be themselves and i think that what's happened and you know, reading this article again in the FT this morning about worker insecurity hits a 20-year high, I think that's because, you know, over the last two decades, people have not been allowed to be themselves in the workplace. And what we did was was encourage people to be an individual, to be themselves. Um, and we have the most diverse workforce in games history, which is fantastic. And it meant that, that people did let themselves go. And, um, you know, and I think that, you know, was telling in, in the coverage that we had in the media and on the TV, that it was just, it, 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 I think in the terms of the volunteers, um, I mean, we look at the Games as a whole, I mean, it was an absolutely amazing event. But I think when I just looked at it from, a, from the lens of the volunteers, it was something bigger than a sporting event. I think something really, really special happened. And I think engagement had a massive part to play in that. And I and I just hope that we can continue to capture that and uh, take things forward.
0: Mm-hmm. So moving on to of talk, talking about our third enabler, which is employee voice, I was really interested to hear that you encouraged people to complete was it daily feedback survey things so that throughout the game, so that you knew what was happening. I mean that sounds very micro and hard to manage to me, but it sounds like it was probably really uh, what, useful.
1: I mean what we did. I mean I, I, I suppose the two the, you know the two key things are you know we had feedback. There was a there, there was a feedback process during the games, through the workforce managers who, you know, many of them had been part of the cr- recruitment team. Um, and, of course, these morning briefings and, after, you know, sorry, I say morning, some people's shift started early in the evening and went all night, but, <laughs> you know, the, the coming on to shift briefing and the end of shift briefing was very much a two-way thing. Uh, you know, a lot of feedback during the games. Um, and, of course, it, it was in some ways it was perhaps easy during the games because we had that face-to-face relationship. I think what was a great challenge was how, how you did that employee voice for the two years beforehand. You know, we, we had people that we were interviewing two years before they were starting a job that they weren't going to get paid for. And, um, you know, how, you know, where's their voice there? And uh, we did, we had feedback after training events, which was very successful. And, you know, it was reassuring for us that actually, um, after our orientation training, 98% of people decided that um, that they were confident about about the role that we were going to do. But I think the other thing as well is that, um, and certainly, I know at the Winter Olympics in Vancouver in 2010, they called it the Facebook Games. Um, now, we were very much also the Facebook Games but also the Twitter Games. And, uh, you know, we used, you know, without moderating, you know, too harshly, we we would use, and certainly you look out Facebook every day, we had about 56,000 followers on, or likes on Facebook. And you could really read the mood music from the blogging that was going on there. And it wasn't just a case of reading it and thinking, oh, we didn't, we actually... We used to sit down with the communications team and the marketing team and look at what people were saying on there and and adjusting and and you know our program in relation to what the feedback was happening on there so so it was it was it was almost passive in some ways but we we got so much information i mean and with fifty six fifty six thousand people on there um you got large enough sample i think to really get a good feel of what was going on
0: mhm. So on the day, or the days, throughout the, the actual Olympics, when you were having those communication meetings and, and briefings and so on, how was that being fed other than through the social media? So were you having calls, conference calls? How, how did it get fed back to whoever needed to know it?
1: Um, what we had is that obviously when you've got a very dislocated um, workforce in terms of uh, you know geographically dislocated, um, in terms of different venues we had a uh, you know hierarchical chain of command which all fed up to what was known as the main operating center which is where i sat and, and sadly i was not in the olympic park i was in um on the 19th floor of an office block in canary wharf which is where the main operating center uh, existed and and actually we had a um we had a, a real time um feedback process which was always going on which was for major incidents etc but every day at the end of every day and at the end of every shift uh, those feedback forms that we t- talked about um at every venue were fed up, and they were fed straight back up that chain um for action, you know whether that required uh, changes in policy or you know you know a changes in resource or a flex you know a flex in resource um you know, that was, it was quite hierarchical but it was it was very much a two way chain of command that we could work mm
0: mm-hmm. and how did that work in the two years leading up to that was it a different Form of, of um, getting that information? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, as I say, it was very much, um, and we were the first games to, uh, we were the first games to do everything online. So um, we had, once people had applied, um, they we had a we then had a portal which was called the Games Maker Zone. So that everybody had applied, they had their own unique username and password, and so we fed them with info, and the volunteers had such a thirst for knowledge. Um, it was incredible, and so what we used to do is use that portal to put both both operational information that was required, you know, things we needed people to do, but also just general information as well. So pre-games, it was very much remote through the Games Maker Zone until we actually were then working with people um, face to face.
0: Mhm. So a great opportunity to get that uh, strategic narrative communicated on an ongoing basis. Oh, absolutely. Interesting to hear it was the uh the first game to do it all online. I mean I know it was four years ago but things you know, <laughs> we've been online for quite a long time, so interesting that uh yeah. it's taken this long to you know, to get so technical with it, but it sounds like uh it's really yeah. set the standard moving forward. Okay. So talk about the organizational integrity then, our fourth enabler, which is about um reflecting, you know, what you say, the values of the business in the day to day behaviours so that you don't have that say do gap. So how how would you sort of fit that into what happened with the, within the um games maker program? Uh,
1: to put it very simply and I'll get then go into a bit more detail, it was it's about keeping your promises or following through on the promises you make. Um and certainly when you're working with a diverse workforce, I and I, I know you know, pe- people people get you know, through a lot of organizations, organisations promise things and, and you know, it's easy to put things on websites and then the email and, and the literature but then actually the reality sometimes is not the case so we were fairly forensic about ensuring that if we said something that we would follow through now obviously with a community, community of 70,000 people there was the odd times where we got it wrong but you know, we were very conscious about maintaining our own integrity so if you think back to Beijing um, the, the big controversy about the girl that sang the hymn that actually I think another girl had sung it, but then she wasn't pretty enough according to the press, and therefore they put something else, somebody else on. So, we just maintained mm-hmm. our integrity. And any time we used volunteers, we used volunteers that they were doing going to use the role that they they would be working in. Uh, you know, when it came to marketing and advertising communication. And I think actually, the, I think a, a good example is really in in diversity and inclusion. Um, we had a, we we had a very very good diversity and inclusion cell where, where I think the first thing was that we went out to communities, be they cultural or religious or ethnic, that, that perhaps didn't have a, a, a background in volunteering or it was not part of, of, of that community's ethos. And what we wanted to do is make sure that we reached out to them to say, look, there is an opportunity. Because actually that was, that was the important thing for us, to ensure that everybody had had the opportunity to do it. And then I think I think the other thing as well is, is, is if you look at the disabled community, when we said that you know we would make um, reasonable adjustments for, for anybody with a disability, um, and again, uh, and I've spoken to a lot of people from the, the disabled community who, you know, they've been promised reasonable adjustments and then, and then when they've turned up, the person that was meant to meet them is not there. So again, we were very very forensic and pernickety about about doing what we would say to make those reasonable adjustments for people because i think that's the only way you can have the organizational integrity is to follow up on the promises you make. Mm, mhm.
0: That's really really interesting and i really feel we can go on for ages and i certainly have already invited you to another show haven't i. But um, what what is the legacy of the games maker program from london 2012? What what have we learned and, and what can we take out of your learnings into organizations out there who are trying to drive the whole employee engagement agenda?
1: I mean, um, it's an interesting one, and, and, and legacy is such a controversial topic, isn't it? And everybody—it's always someone else's um, responsibility as well. And um, you know, I've heard people talk about where is the volunteer legacy. But of course, as an organising committee, um, you know, we—it doesn't—LOCOG no longer exists. And um, but without getting into the detail of whose responsibilities, I think that I think there are two major elements to the legacy. I think there's those direct things that I mean, if you look at someone like Sport England they're getting they've now got forty thousand what they call sports makers um you know people back into grassroots volunteering in, in, in sport in grassroots sport. I think from my perspective the big the big lesson I think for me and, and the and the business I'm in now is you know I work with large organisations now who, who look at this attitude, behaviour and outcomes piece. And a lot of organisations that that you know have got values that are, you know, up on the wall, they talk about them at the annual conference but, but actually don't mean anything on a day-to-day basis, and certainly, you know, a number of the companies I'm working with at the moment, we're talking about how do we translate those values into behaviors, into something meaningful in the workplace that is sustainable over the long term to have actually good outcomes for the business. So I think there's this, you know, if I would sum it up um, strategically about what everybody's got to learn, it's about the fact that actually values, you know, values are boring. (laughs) If values are important. Um, you know, and I think. I think. You know, we went through a couple of decades of values perhaps not being very cool, and um, you know, and employee recognition was all about promotion and bonus. When actually, you can have a far better working environment um, if you've got um, if you've got um, you know those values embedded in what you're doing.
0: Mhm. Yeah. Okay. So that's really really useful and um as i said there's there's sort of loads more that we can we could pursue so um i'm hoping that you will come back again phil because that was really interesting and um and i'm sure as time goes on you'll have some more um sort of application of what happened within the games maker program into the bigger companies that you're working with as well which which would be really interesting for people to to hear about so um thank you so much for coming on and for sharing everything you have there is an article on our uh, blog on our website engage-success.org, which uh, really sort of pulls those points together across the four enablers so i'd encourage people to go and look at those uh if they want to find out a bit more um so um thank you very much and um are you available on twitter and places like that <laughs> that people can follow you um, i'll well, get to onto the website for you <laughs> okay but you're would you like to um say your website address so people know how to find you
1: yes it's um www.purpleandred.co.uk www.purpleandred.co.uk
0: excellent thank you so much so i just like to talk about a few events that are coming up in may for um people interested in engaged success and employee engagement we've got a regional practitioner event in Manchester on Wednesday, um, which is hosted by the, Co-op, the co-operative group, and it's uh, from 9.15 till 1 in the morning. Um, 1 in the morning, 1 in the afternoon even. Um, so um, details of that are on the website. If you go to engagesuccess.org and then click on to community and events, you'll be able to find that on Wednesday. And then there's an event on Thursday, which is about learning winning strategies for leaders uh, from pets at home, born Leisure and Lexington, and that's Thursday, 10 till 3. There is an investment required for that event, and all the details and information to book is on the website. And then we've got our Guru Group meeting on the 30th of May, which is uh, a week on Thursday, um, at Y Boston Lakes, a lovely venue um, up somewhere near Milton keynes <laughs> Um And that's uh, an afternoon meeting. And so if you're interested in that, again, the details of that are on the website and we've got some really good stuff lined up for that day with various different exercises and group discussions and opportunity to network with other gurus and also some practitioners who are coming along as well. So those are the events that are in for May. I'd encourage you if you've got events that you're running um, for Engage with Success or about employee engagement in general to let us know. You can go to the website, to the events section and actually add those events yourself or if you're not comfortable doing that then please uh, email them through to content at engaged um, And I'd also just like to quickly talk about what's happening next week. We've um, just got um, a last minute agreement from somebody to come on next week, so um, we haven't got the details up yet. So I can just give you a bit of an overview, but um, keep an eye out on our website and also on our blog talk radio page for details. And that's um, Doug Shaw. Um, is going to be coming along. He's an organizational and people development consultant. His company is called What Goes Around Limited, and his website is www.stopdoingdumbthingstocustomers.com. So I like both of those as uh, as titles. Do They do what they say on the tin. And we're going to be talking about um, whether engagement has a role in breaking old habits and encouraging diverse views. So we're going to be doing that next week. So thank you very much, everybody, and we'll see you on show 21.
1: Engage for Success Radio, raising the profile of employee engagement and shining a light on good practice for people who believe there is a better way to work.